So we asked him. He's like, I'm on Mondays I'm in Albany instead of Atlanta. Why can't I go to Atlanta? And he just looked at him and adjusted his tie and said, My boy, the reason you're in Albany is Albany's my shit town. That's where I send all my shit. <laughs> and he was gone two weeks later. That is hilarious. Let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, former champions, I've never seen anything like it, Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkel. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars in Conversation, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Yoke, and I am sitting here with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent. That ranges from the Estonian Thunderfrog all the way to David Fit Finley. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications, as well as serving as a play-by-play announcer for Roller Derby. With 20 years of experience, he is a true Renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the incomparable, the one, the only, Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Derek, how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm just listening to this plane on the outside, and I want to like rip into back in the USSR. Yes. No, I know. It's uh, nice. It's almost that like That dates me, but I don't care. Beatles like, are cool. Uh, Beatles are Beatles? Beatles are cool. Yes. I am proud to say I helped... Helped convince Seth Rollins, under his previous guys, to buy the Beatles rock band uh, when it came out. Because I was like, you need to experience these songs. So you didn't teach him any holds or moves? You just taught him you need to get the Beatles rock band? Well, because I wanted him to be exposed to the Beatles. Okay. No, that's great. He said he loved them. He probably blew me off. I don't care. Right. I, did you, did you I did my part him? for the youth. No, I did not. Did you see that? Because, I mean, he might have just said it. Yeah. So. Eh, whatever. Um, but anyhow... I'm ready to jump right into this. Yes, yes. I'm very excited about this, especially all of the prep that we actually did for this episode. This was amazing. Um, Today we are talking about, actually this is going to be a two-parter for us, Uh, we are going to be talking about Starcade 85, The Gathering, Gathering. or as we've referred to it many times, as, okay, somebody in each one of these matches has to be wearing some kind of cowboy boots. Yes, yes. I'm very excited to get into that. Yeah, that's uh, just the uh, the fashion aesthetic, uh, the shows them, the show that itself, and everything about it really just made for great watching. You and I got together last week and sat down and we watched the event uh, top to bottom and um, took some notes, sat and didn't talk to each other the whole time. That was funny. I didn't want you to see what I was had on my paper. Same here. It was like two kids in a test. Yep. Uh, just uh, being quiet, being very uh, astute to what was happening. Uh, so we'll give you the background a little bit here. So we have uh, Starcade 1985. Uh, takes place on November 28th. Uh, promotion is the National Wrestling Alliance, as most everybody knows. Uh, P- Jim Crockett Promotions as a member of the National so Wrestling okay. Alliance. Okay, thank you for correcting me on that. Uh, what was great about this was uh, this was the first show that was broadcast between two venues. Yes, I remember the big setup for that. I believe they also repeated this for... Uh, was it the second Crockett Cup? Yes. Uh, which from Greensboro and Greenville, I believe. I think you are correct on that. This time, it was the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina. Oh, very big difference. I'm sorry. Very big difference. Uh, this was broadcast from two venues at the same time, whereas the Crockett Cup was sequential nights. Gotcha. Correct. Right. Uh, that's a, a great distinction there. So it's uh, the Greensboro Coliseum and from Atlanta, Georgia, in the Omni. Which I've been to, so haha. Ah, very nice. Uh, I did not know that. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, New Year's Day, nineteen eighty-nine. I believe the main was Flair and Luger. Wow. Yes. How old were you? Uh, nineteen. Did, had, was that like a road trip? I had cousins that lived in Marietta, uh, who actually stored a boat of microtondos on their property. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so I felt cool about so that. So he really was a captain. Well, he had a boat. <laughs> what he did with that boat... He had a boat. ...is uh, anybody's, <laughs> is anybody's uh, idea. So, all right, let's get into this a little bit here. Um, so this was the third Starcade uh, at this point, and leading up to it... Um, a lot of things happening, uh, namely the big one, and this will tie into the main event, was uh, the feud between Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Again. Who's booking? Dusty Rhodes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, we can get into this when we discuss the match, but this was coming off the uh, big turn by Ric Flair where he had been a face for a while going against the Russians, and then they had the match where the Andersons broke Dusty's ankle. Right. And that was well, all in the cage, wasn't it? Uh, yes, I believe. Cause I remember if, if I recall correctly, um, Flair had to call him in a little bit when they had Dusty set up because he couldn't get out that far on the jump. Oh yes. So he had to have, all right, bring him in a little bit, guys. Got it. Boom. And there just, it was. And I, there's the leg. I can just sympathize. Sometimes you get up there and the spacing's all wrong and you're just like, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> this is going to hurt. Right. And you just got to go for yep. it at that point. Okay, anyway, let's get into the show. So how we're going to handle this, um, we're basically going to go match to match. We're going to talk about our ideas, what we thought, some of the things that stuck out to us, um, give the uh, winners, losers, uh, everybody else that's involved, just kind of talk about the aesthetics of each match and how they played into the card. Uh, What we're going to do, too, because this is a two-episode show, what we're going to do is we're going to take a few of the matches uh, that are on the undercard, and we're going to move those over to the second show. So it's almost like we're creating two different shows, five matches per show, because it was a 10-match show. Does that make sense? Makes sense, and fear not, you will get your ration of Western boots Yes, with both episodes. And we're going to kick it off with some Western boots uh, right off the bat. We're looking at the first match of the night was uh, Young Sam Houston versus Crusher Khrushchev. For the vacant Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship. All right. What would what, right off the bat? I look at my notes, and uh, I the first thing I've written down is cowboy boots. Yes, Sam Houston wearing the characteristic cowboy boot pattern. We we will get into this over the course of the show, but there were only a variety of different wrestling boot patterns that were very common. Uh, remember, the business is very small, so everybody got their boots from two or three different places. Uh, off the top of my head, there was Bill Ash, who was out of Arkansas, and Clifford Messias out of Houston. Uh, from what, I re- what I've been told, Clifford Messias made a very heavy boot. Uh, lasted forever, but it was just very heavy, whereas Bill Ash's were lighter. Guys also got boots out of Mexico, uh, which were generally very, very light and did or did not last very long. Okay. Very but nice. But the western boot that Sam Houston is wearing, it's like an oversized cowboy boot with uh, long stripes down either side, resulting in two tassels down by the heel. Yes. And uh, characteristic, almost like a thunderbird or butterfly pattern on the front and on the side, and then you could have words or your name put down the the side of the boot in letters. Right. And this is what the motif we would see all night long. All night long. Just very popular. Uh, Also notable for his boots, Crusher Khrushchev, who's wearing the open-top Russian style, which is more of a... Like a riding boot. Right. But Neither looked terribly comfortable. Right. It left that gap around the calf. Yes, yes. You had to wonder like where the support came from. I guess I would always imagine there was some sort of inner webbing, but you know, who right. knows. But who knows on that. Another thing uh, right off the bat we can talk about as far as this, uh, the fashion of the, the time. We talked about it, and I think we both brought it up right away. Both men wearing red gear. Ah, uh, yes. Wearing red gear, um, also from K&H. Very happy for that. Yeah, and that was just definitely a look uh, that I'm always surprised when you see two guys wrestling each other wearing the exact same color gear. Uh, The only exception I'll make for that is black because it's such a universal color, but you're right because if two guys are wearing the same color, they look like tag team partners rather than than foes. And I I was going to say, too, I think it might be uh, good to get into not only the wrestlers had a look about themselves... The referee had a look about themselves, Yes, too. in a yellow jumpsuit, Sonny Fargo. Oh, yeah, right. Very happy for this. Now, Sonny Fargo, I was very happy to see him as the ref because Sonny Fargo, um, uh, I can't remember his real name, Rats, uh, the brother of Jackie Fargo, uh, had a job, I believe, at Kodak 
in the Carolinas, so he would moonlight as a referee in that area. But a couple times a year when he could get vacation or get time off, Jackie would have trouble down in Tennessee, and he'd have to go to the go to the asylum, let out his crazy brother, Roughhouse Sonny Fargo. So he did like a, a crazy character gimmick in Tennessee and got over like a million bucks. And oh, he would only do it every now and then. Yeah, yeah, because Jackie would have to go get a day pass to let his brother out of the out of the asylum. That's pretty cool. You know, so that would be like they'd build him up, so he'd go down there and make a whole bunch of paydays and go back to his day job. Yeah, but again. Uh, one of these guys, just an incredible career. Here he is as a referee. And like when I was growing up, I had no idea what it was, but now all of a sudden it's like, oh, he had a 30 year career before he was wearing that snazzy yellow jumpsuit. And I do, I do like in the, a lot of the Southern promotions where the referee did have, uh, there was a yellow jumpsuit. I believe there was also a blue jumpsuit for Atlanta TV. I remember Scrappy McGowan wearing one, Mm -hmm. but I do like the alternate Instead of just the stripes, like, oh, but I'm still the referee. It's something to put him off from the, the combatants. In right, the ring. Like, a, like a giant yellow banana with bell bottoms. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was a look. Um, what did you think of the match? Uh, the match was pretty good. Uh, these are two guys uh, that were still relatively young. Crusher Khrushchev was before his big knee injury that he had. Yeah. Uh, forget how that happens, but he was on the shelf for a long time. Uh, I've seen pay stubs, I believe it was in the Midnight Express book, how a lot of the guys would contribute like $25 out of their check, and that got put in a fund so Crusher Khrushchev could get a payday while he was healing up. And the oh, same I didn't thing, know that. The same thing was done for Magnum TA. After the Porsche crash? Yes. Wow. Yeah, a lot of guys would, you know, everybody would have so much taken out of their check, so it would go, because it was the, you know, the family atmosphere that and they the thing had to there. do. Oh, that's cool. That's uh, the match was pretty that. good. Um, oh, sorry, before we get to the match, Crusher Khrushchev wearing the black trace knee pads, which I was very happy to see, because for a long time that was the standard in wrestling. However, they've been recently discontinued, so it's very difficult to get them now. Has the price gone up? Uh, no, actually, it's gone down because guys are trying to get rid of their inventory because now it's shifted over to either the, uh, like they sell them for softball and stuff like that. So the yeah. pads you can get now go halfway down your shin and stuff like that. It's just a case of nobody was buying them. Okay. And so um, another thing that was brought up when we watched this, the uh, Crusher Khrushchev gimmick that he did, he never really, he was, I think you told me, he was a sympathizer. His character was portrayed as a Russian sympathizer, correct? Yes, he was always from Thief River Falls, Minnesota. Okay. Know, to get to get him to be very white bread and everything, and he was went over to the Russian side. And was there a reason why? Uh, it made him some money. <laughs> and that is worth it yes. in and of itself. Uh, a few things I liked in this match. Uh, Sonny, uh, I'm sorry, Sam Houston goes to do the hip toss, gets blocked, Puts his leg across the back of his neck, flips over, instead of going into the hip toss, jumps up into a head scissors, which is something that was very different for that mat, uh, for that spot. Sure, yeah. So it's a different way to cap it off. Um, at one point, Khrushchev goes to give Houston what looks like a backdrop, but goes into a face plant. I believe it was always supposed to be a face plant, but as you're watching it, you're like, he's not going to get over, he's not going to get right, over, yep. boom. You know, you're waiting to see somebody land on their head. Uh, the finish was the sickle. And it was a good-looking sickle, Good-looking sickle. folded him up pretty nice. Uh, Fargo goes down for the count. Houston puts his foot on the rope. Count one, two. Uh, Khrushchev pulls his foot off the rope without the ref seeing. Right. So very good positioning on that part. That's what got that finish over. I, I hate when a lot of guys go down and grab the rope immediately. Yes. Uh, you have to wait until the ref is counting because then you know his eyes are on the shoulders before you can pull any dirty deeds on the outside. Right, right. Yeah, that was great. I thought it was the timing was good. Everything worked out really nice. Yeah, well, that's why that's why the stadium was full to see him. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, something to, 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 I guess, now before we transition into the next match just to kind of explain how things were going for the telecast itself um what the show itself opened up with tony shivani and it was bob coddle right yes bob uh, coddle who bob coddle can you give a little background at all i think he was a local radio guy okay that uh or a newscaster that got into announcing off of that i know tony shivani was doing some minor league baseball announcing before right. he got into the before he got the job. Recommended by Ric Flair, I understand. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Um, so, show starts out. Uh, Shivani and Cottle are in the Omni. Yep. And that's where they introduce the show. Uh, they throw it to uh, the uh, Greensboro Coliseum. To who? Johnny Weaver. Yes. All the cuts on the forehead and everything. <laughs> 
Looks like everybody's grandpa, but Johnny Weaver, again, had a 30-year career as one of the matinee idols in the area. I believe he tagged with uh, George Becker, who was the older booker when uh, the Carolinas was a tag team area, but he put himself in a tag team with Johnny Weaver because he was the up-and-coming star and he could keep himself in the main events and make that money. Uh, but as you look at him now, on the set, all you can see is just the huge divots in his forehead and how he just, just must have dug each one of those. Very uncomfortable. He looked extremely uncomfortable yeah, look, the whole night. Yes. Um, well, you know, the business is starting to pass him by at this right, point. Right. Uh, I believe he went into law enforcement after that. That seems to be a very common... Well, how old was he, do you think, in 85? Because he looked old then. Uh, I'd still say early 50s. Really? Yeah. Okay. Mid fifty. I'll give you mid fifty. Yeah. I, okay. I but I mean, led a hard life, you know, driving right. and drinking all, you know, all the time, you know, the way these guys did. Which uh, would, yeah, that would definitely make sense. Uh, married to Penny Banner, a very tumultuous marriage. Another thing that was nice about uh, the show, or neat the way that they did it, was that instead of it being a series of matches from one venue and then it jumping over to the other venue, they actually toggled between the two venues. Not being there. I'm assuming that what they had were television screens up. Absolutely. And yes. uh, like a closed circuit television screen. So they would show one match at one arena and then they would jump over and show another match. Uh, they, they'd, then they'd go to the other arena and have a match and you'd be able to watch it. So it was just going back and forth throughout the night. Correct. Um, that sounds miserable. Why do you say that? To, I mean, it would be nice, I guess, to see the live stuff that was there. However, um, watching... A, some kind of broadcast of something else from somewhere else. Right. I just imagine that it's a lot of people sitting on their hands and not paying much attention, and the impact of it is gone. Well, what about when you're watching a pay-per-view at home or you go to a bar? But that's different because I'm not there with you know 15,000 people. But this was avant-garde for the time. I oh, mean, they, there had been sure. closed-circuit stuff previously. No, I know. I always wonder. Sometimes they talk about uh, broadcasting pay-per-views at um, movie theaters. Right. And I've always thought maybe that would be fun to go see. But then, I mean, I guess that's different because the screen at a movie theater is so large. I wonder what kind of screens they had up at at, at these arenas. Big ones. Big ones. Well, this, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Is that, that's your side? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's just what I'm going to say. Opinion. I think it, uh, the excitement was you were watching these things unfolding as it happened. Remember, you didn't have the instant, you know, instant media that you did of today. Right. No, and I, I yeah, that makes sense. I but, just, I mean, it was set up. This is the big card. It's the gathering. It's bringing these two cities together. That was part of the gimmick. And you still got a main event at each venue. Right. No, absolutely. And, they, yeah, it was great. Uh, I just, I don't know, a little more, bit more difficult for me. I think another thing we'll see as this goes as Why the card you goes. Believe? I don't know. Why don't, I've just looked at the years since and see that spoiled. Atlanta and nothing, Greensboro nothing have not spoiled. bonded the way they did the night of the gathering. That's what you are spoiled. That's my that's my take. But the other one too is it served a purpose because one venue had all the cage matches while the other venue did not. Right. So bet you that saved a lot of time. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So Moving on, speaking of saving time, now we jump to the Omni yes. for the first match from the Omni. Yes. And this is the Mexican death match. Mexican death match. But if I were to ask somebody, tell me what the Mexican death match is, you might hear all kinds of things like, you know, first person to say I quit or the first person to bleed or the first person to pass out. No, you had to get a sombrero off of a pole. That's yes. how you won the Mexican death match. So it was technically a sombrero on a pole match. Back in the the PC days of the 80s, using the word... Uh, oh, yeah, this Mex match is very PC. The Mexi Mexican death match, eh, put a sombrero on the pole. Could yes. have been a chihuahua, could have been a chalupa. They chose a sombrero. Mexican death match between Abdullah the Butcher, who's allegedly a madman from the Sudan. Yes. Paul Jones, number one Paul Jones, with that questionable black mustache that he had. Yes. But a great suit. Yes, Always love great the tux. Suit, great Always suit. love the tux. Going against Manny Fernandez, who comes out wearing the sombrero. Right. So he comes out with the sombrero, takes it to the ring, and then proceeds to put it up on the pole. Or someone else does. Yeah, the referee took it from him. No pinfalls, no stoppage, no DQ. Climb the pole for the sombrero. Yeah. And so... What's great about this is this is where we're going to start to see a pattern start to occur throughout this whole show. Yes. As far as the um, from the amount of time that transpires between the start of the match and the first person to bleed. Ten seconds. Ten seconds in this. Ten match. seconds in. Ten seconds in. 
Fernandez gets color. Abdullah starts hitting him with the bell hammer, which I enjoyed. Yes, that was great. Yes. Um, and a very good uh, mask, by the way, too. I mean, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Manny really, really did a good one, really uh, cut it open well. Um, so that was interesting. So now you're 10 seconds into the match, and somebody's already bleeding. doesn't take long for... Abby looked like he was bleeding before the match started. Yeah, he looked like he had something that was raw from you know either that week or... Right. Yesterday, right, <laughs> and you know, and I would be remiss if we didn't mention something that shocked the hell out of me was when Abby was walking to the ring, a fan reached out and grabbed his uh, wrap off his head. Is that a burnoose or something? Yeah, whatever. I, I don't know what it's called exactly, but um, a fan actually had the balls to reach out and grab that, and then Abby went and started swinging at him, and then the police took care of the guy from there. Which is really scary, because Abby had blades on all of his fingers. Right. Like, uh, the Sheik out of Detroit was like that, too. If somebody did something, he would he would cut you in a heartbeat. Yeah. But nobody knew about blading back then, but then it was just weird that you didn't think the Sheik was blading. You were just like, holy crap, the Sheik has razor blades on his fingers. Right. You know, like, this guy's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and that uh, that fan I'm sure had a bit of a rude awakening uh, from that too. <laughs> uh, uh, again, the Southern Territories. A lot of times, a fan would cause trouble. They'd pull him in the back, and they'd get five minutes with the the wrestler that they tried to jump. Yeah, can you believe that? Referee. Could you imagine Abby coming at you? Abby, that'd be a bit much. So. Uh, we have our basic brawl here. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, very surprising, though, on the part of uh, Abdullah the Butcher. Takes a lot. Took a monkey flip. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Took a monkey flip and took a bump off the ropes when he was trying to climb. Yeah. Thought that was incredible. Uh, also notable for Manny Fernandez taking the spike to the taint. Yes. Which just looked painful. And then he took a flip bump off of it. Oh, that's, which, yes, which that's right. Which I thought was funny. Um, another interesting fact, Fernandez loses his boots, both well, boots. Yeah, but he purposely takes them off to beat Abdullah in the head with him. Uh, I know, but I'm saying, but that's great. Like just Oh, it's great, but off. then he also climbs the ropes, which... Which seemed painful. Seemed, yeah. Yeah, it just seems like if you're used to having soles there, suddenly you've got these cables cutting into the bottoms of your feet. You know? Right. Well, oh, okay. but you know, when you're in a Mexican death match, it, any anything goes. I mean, that's the level of brutality that these two took it to. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, too, he took his belt off, right? Yes. And uh, started uh, I started yeah. started whipping Abdullah with it, which uh, would be difficult to call. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't know really what to say about that. I just think, uh, as far as, I, and I don't even want to say brutality. It was just. Because it wasn't brutality is too nice of a word. Well, I thought. See, and I thought it was. This to me was maybe it was the sombrero on the pole, uh, maybe it was running around in his socks, um, maybe the finishing move called the flying burrito. This match, while bloody, I I don't even want to say it was comical. It just didn't have like there wasn't an intensity to it, in my opinion. Uh, There wasn't any heat, if I recall, like. Uh, Manny was a guy that always got wins on TV, so he was kept hot, and Abdullah the Butcher was Abdullah the Butcher, and I think they may have had a confrontation with Manny and Paul Jones leading up to it. Yeah. Uh, Paul Jones was always in the office because he was known as a stooge, and he just, everybody accepted that he came with the, with the rent. Right. You know, but, uh... 20-year career before he homesteaded in the Carolinas, out of Port Arthur, Texas, allegedly dated Janis Joplin. I always love that story. Yes. Yes. Uh, the man like, in the tuxedo dated Janis yes, Joplin. Yeah, he was a cameraman at the local studio. That's how he fell in with the wrestlers and gotcha. boom, took off from there. Well, so uh, another thing I think is, uh, say it's good booking, but it's you know protecting Abby and everything like that, is Abby takes the loss, Fernandez wins, hits him with the flying burrito, and then ascends the turnbuckles and gets the sombrero yes. and brings it down. Um, nice way for Abby to save face. He doesn't take the pinfall. Exactly. Um, but, you know, still ends up losing the match. Overall, again, I didn't fun. win, baby. He never, I didn't lose. He never pinned me. Right, yeah. right. And um, it's a match where I guess you can look at it and you could say, uh, with the exception of a sombrero on a pole, you could say it's pretty much a classic kind of Abby kind of blood match. Yeah, yeah. I would think no, that Nothing too exciting except for the sombrero on a pole. And they which, don't take it outside, passive. do they? If no, I, they, no. Nothing that, you know, not Well, like, they were also, remember, they were the opening match. Right. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like Abby and Brody or anything or like that where they're walking around the ring and out by the crowd. This was all strictly in the ring. 
um, working towards that common goal to get the sombrero off the pole. Yeah, but speaking of taking it outside, they could not do that in the next match. Correct. In which the two men were joined by a length of hemp that had a bell in the middle, the Texas bull rope. Yep, absolutely. And uh, a quick one uh, about this: um, another bleeder, right? Another, <laughs> another. Uh, uh, yeah, another couple of bleeders in this one, actually. Yep. Who was in this match? Ron Bass, cow, cowboy Ron Bass. Yep. Against Black Bart, who's managed by J.J. Dillon. Who comes to the ring wearing... Do uh, you remember? Came to the ring wearing the Western boots. Uh, Western boots, jeans, and a tuxedo t-shirt. Oh, oh you're talking about J.J. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, yes. Yeah, so you're talking about, about Black Bart. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. J.J. came out with the boots and the, the jeans tucked in and everything because if Ron Bass won, he got five minutes of a match with J.J. Dillon. So J.J. was ready for action in case it happened. Always a bittersweet... Uh, uh, idea for a match in my opinion why is that well because i think it's inevitable i don't has there can you think of a match ever in history where it's been oh if this guy wins he gets five minutes with the other guy's manager and he ends up losing and doesn't get the five minutes i I can't recall right now but yes it has happened. has it really oh yeah yeah memphis it happened all the time okay interesting i did not know that see i feel like everything i ever saw was it was almost inevitable that he was going to get five minutes with the manager right and and as it, we'll talk about this match, and as it unfolds, I think it's that it's a typical formula for the way that it unfolds. Oh, exactly. To exactly. you know, protect the manager and everything. Else. Now, Ron Bass and Black Bart are coming off being a uh, tag team. I thought they were the Long Riders, but I also know that that's the Irwin brothers. So yeah. I'm not sure if they. Copied I thought that they called them Long Riders in the uh, uh, during commentary. Right, right. Uh, but both men wearing the Western boots. Yes. Yes, the, and, the and same with the butterfly on the front and the flaps on the side. Identical boots, uh, brown bass with black tights, <laughs> black, or black, trunks. black trunks, and uh, K&H black... with the double double horseshoe. Yes. And Which I believe there's a pair of those on sale on eBay as we speak. From Ron Bass? Yes. Wow. Like the signed ones. But it's one of those trunks that are like framed and it's like $550. Oh, okay. Like you see something like that, like... Dustin Rhodes has a pair of Western boots on sale on eBay right now for six grand. Oh wow! And it's like, eh, do you th- do you think those are going to move for six grand? I don't I don't think they're going to move. <laughs> well, they're very nice boots. Anyway, uh, Texas Bull Rope match. JJ five minutes dressed for the match. Uh, JJ works in the office at this point. Okay, he came yep. up. Um, Dust- Dusty Rhodes when he came to Jim Crocker Promotions, he was booking down in Florida, and he did the cardinal sin of what a booker should never do. Um, Jim Crockett wanted to bring him in, so Dusty brought his entire crew and gutted Florida out. Yeah. Uh, both of, uh, All three men in this match, Ron Bass, Black Bart, and J.J. Dillon, were in Florida at that point. Boom, overnight they're all gone. Uh, Ric Flair talks about it in his book where he has to go down and he has to wrestle our draws with Charlie Cook. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, who, you know, again, made more money in wrestling than I ever will, right. but... Uh, was not main event talent that they were using then. Yeah. Uh, Black Bard is a future world-class championship wrestling world champ. Yep. Uh, in a phantom phantom match over Chris Adams, losing to Kevin Von Erich. Uh, Ron Bass later goes on to become a florist. Um, <laughs> according to his interview, likes, uh, likes, likes herbs, likes herbal supplements. Let's put it that way. Sure. Um, about the match, what do you what? Let's go into the blood factor. Blade ten seconds in again. Yeah, <laughs> another match boom. right away. Boom. Now the other thing too, um, when we're doing these or when we're watching this, it was it always this obvious to you when the guys were cutting themselves? Well, you you didn't know you didn't know to look for it. I, yeah, I, I guess I just feel like the camera angles at some points were in very. Um, uh, Obvious well, Black Bart went for it three on. or four times. Oh yeah, he? yeah, he went for it, for and that sure. was that was to keep going because he wanted that crimson mask or whatever. Right, and uh, he definitely he was he was def- he, he had the crimson mask, whereas uh, Ron Bass had a, a nice spattering, but it wasn't yeah, I anything think near Black Bart. He did the more now the crimson mask is always nice, but I'm a fan of where it's only covering half of the forehead. Yeah, because it just looks you know quote unquote more real. I agree. Like if you get if you get hit, like the more realistic, they always say you should go like across your forehead so you're with the wrinkles of your skin. But the more realistic are the straight up and down because if you hit a post, 
that's what your cut that's is how it's gonna, that's split. what your cut's gonna look like. Right. But then you get the goofy uh Pat Patterson has it really bad yeah. over one eye because he always got color from the same area. Uh Ron Bass wearing the black glove, but very interesting variation. I made a note on discussing the black gloves used especially by cowboys in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh Ron Bass was wearing like a spandex um fingerless glove, but you know, it was very form fitting to his hand. Blackjack Mulligan, it seems sometimes, would wear a glove that was long, but then he would turn the top of it down. Okay. You know, like yeah, it, sure. It was very strange, like that. Blackjack Lanza had almost it was like almost a golf glove, like the palm was open, but right. the back was covered. Yeah. It was just this, like, what did all these gloves do to this hold? You know, it's supposed to reinforce the hand. Well, doesn't it become a foreign object then? But right. it, it was just something you discuss. It's like, well, why does this glove here? And, you know, I always just like went in my mom's glove drawer and cut fingers off her favorite pair, and I had you know gloves for a while. Yeah, that's. Uh, uh, but then when the fingerless great. gloves from Heavy Metal came around, that's you know that's what you had to wear. I believe that's what Barry Windham wore. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. That's that's for yeah, sure. Because that helps. What uh, What do you think of these matches with uh, bull ropes or strap matches? What's your thought on them? Oh, I like them. It's just it's how you work it. Do you like it better when it's a pinfall for the win or do you like it better when they have to touch the corners oh no i like the pinfall the touch of the corners was always funny because it always went to the same finish where they're both touching and then suddenly the face touches at the end it's almost like i feel like the ones and and by the way for those who haven't seen this this was a pinfall this wasn't a touch the corners match but i almost feel like when uh i've seen the touch the corners matches there, ha- there isn't much that you can really do with it. There aren't many different variations on right. how to win that match. Exactly. Uh, Wahoo always did the drag and touch with his head. I know some guys would get you in a hangman over the shoulder and carry you around, right. but it was to set up where you'd walk away and then the other guy could get that corner as Right, well. and then normally the guy that was in the hangman would end up doing some kind of like almost like flip over of course the front and then flip so, over the front take a punch boom he's in the corner and ah. that hit, yeah exactly and, uh, and it was they, never for really whatever cl- reason they took the 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 chain off the face first so that the heel could start beating him with the chain oh my god they should have thought right, of this right right and i always um thought that there was no explanation on that match as to when it would restart Right. Like, oh, now he interrupted that count. Exactly. So now he has to start all over again. Yes. They, it, well, it would interrupt until the end. Right. So I love you know, this. Because the, we say so. Yeah. And it was the good, the drag out down and dirty, just two guys using that bell in the middle and just pummeling each other with the bell. <laughs> which which I love with the bell. That makes it the Texas bull rope. The Russian chain match was ostensibly taken from the chain gangs in Siberia. Yes. Now the Russian bull, uh, the, the Texas bull rope, like you know that there was a rope, but... Did you really have the bell on a lasso or something? Right, like but aesthetically, really it was just it really fucking sense. awesome. Makes sense, makes sense. That's, I think that's the... Because yeah. you look at it and you're just like, that's super great. So, uh, um, what was I going to have here? A rest, ref bump? Something on... I can't remember what I said on Bass, but then JJ gets pulled in for Ron Bass. Yeah, um, but wasn't that... Uh, first off, Ron Bass beats Black Bart. Yes. Um, I think it was he just came off the second rope with the bell to the head and like knocked him out. There was It was something with the... I, I can't remember the exact finish. Yeah, even though we just watched it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I believe it was uh, Bass hit Bart with the bell. Try to say that five times fast. Uh-huh. And um, knocked out Bart, got the pin, which then brought... Uh, JJ in the ring, but at this point, this is where it always becomes bittersweet to me because Ron Bass is already beaten up and he's exhausted. And we commented on this. Not 30 seconds before the match ended, um, Tony Schiavone says, I bet you JJ Dillon is super scared because if Ron Bass gets his hands on him, he's going to absolutely pulverize him. Of course. Ron Bass gets the win, and then JJ comes in the ring, takes off the tuxedo shirt, and starts beating up Ron Bass. And again, 30 seconds later, Tony Schiavone says, uh, Ron Bass is definitely at a disadvantage now that he's worked this match. Yes. JJ's going to have his way with him. Yes. Um, that was just very short <laughs> short uh, history there, the way that worked well, out. Well, that, that was the whole uh, pull of the five-minute match. Is right. that and that's the bittersweet. The heel comes in, beats him up for four minutes, and you get a one-minute comeback. Right. And then either gets pinned or the heel escapes to, you know, wrestle another day. Right. But that's, that's how you pull that out. So J.J. Dillon, manager, 
gets color. Manager extraordinaire. Yes, gets color as well. Of course he does. Um, during this, there's a you know a Bass makes his comeback. Um, eventually, ref bump again, and uh, this leads to Black Bart coming back in the ring. Yes. And um, I think he just drives a knee to, to the back of his head. Yeah. And that was it. And then rolls J.J. Dillon over on top of Black Bart. One, two, three. Or not on Black Bart, on Ron Bass. Too many Bs in this match. And um, Thank goodness there's no B. Brian Blair. Yeah, it would be the worst. Would be um, the worst. And that was, that was that. And that's that match. And again, Cowboy Boots, blood within seconds. Uh, just a real great... Uh, Gimmick match. Love the cowboy boots. Yeah. And so now we're three matches in. We've had two gimmick matches. Uh, out of those three matches, two of them have had excessive bleeding from almost all participants. Uh, true. Touching on the boots, uh, we mentioned the traditional patterns of the boots. We, we're, we're, of course, hammering on the Western boots because it's all over this match. Yes. Incredible. Uh, the other styles were the standard style, which was a smooth, just regular boot. Uh, the one that was very common that we see also several times in this show uh, is the wingtip. Yes. With the toe and the heel matching the other trim on the boots. Very classic style. Most of my boots are made in this style. So you had the classic, the wingtip, the Russian, uh, the Western. Then you had uh, like the Sudanese right. that uh, Abby. Like Abby would wear, yeah. which was essentially almost a modified Russian you know, very low cut, uh, where they just added an appliance on the front. Right, right. Now, I've seen those kind of boots made two different times where it's like a regular pair of boots and they added the toe piece, but I've also seen some where it's actually cut into the oh, okay. into the construction. Yeah. I mean, I assume it fits the same on the, the inside, but, you know, it's got a, it's got a curly toe on it. Why uh, not? Yeah, the curly um, boot. Uh, incidentally, the after mags at one time had a huge sweepstakes where you could win a bunch of stuff. Uh, I remember there was a lock of Ric Flair's hair, uh, <laughs> you know, old trunks and blah, 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 blah. But one was a boot from the Iron Sheik. Oh, wow. And I really wanted to enter this contest so I could win that boot and see how he loaded it up. Yeah, that's, uh, that would be pretty cool. Yes, it would. Well, did you get it? No, I did not. I okay. didn't even enter it. <laughs> you, I, just, I, you quit. No I, I, no, I never started. Okay. Fair enough. That may, Yeah, that's good. twentieth century Indian fighters traveled to Europe in order to participate in various tournaments. The famous Indian grappler Gulam Hussein, alias Great Gama of India, accompanied by his younger brother Inmam, sailed to England to compete with the Western wrestlers. Gama was managed by the English wrestling promoter Mr. Benjamin. He started working shows for a company that staged wrestling shows in England. Gama wrestled about two hundred matches without any loss before entering in the all-world competition in London. The first professional wrestler to take on Gama's challenge was the American Dr. Benjamin Roller. In this bout, Gama pinned Roller in 1 minute and 40 seconds the first time, and in 9 minutes and 10 seconds the next. Within the next two months, Gama wiped out all opposition until he finally met Stanislaw Sabisco in the match which was to be one of the longest ever. On September 10, 1910, Stanislaw Sibisko of Poland came across the Great Gama of India in a world championship match. With hundreds of wrestling fans turned away, around 100,000 spectators jammed the packed stadium at the White City of London to the point of suffocation. The purse for the match was 250 pounds in prize money and the coveted championship belt. The floor of the ring was covered in foam padding and the wrestlers from Italy, France, Scotland, Japan, America, and Great Britain were all seated around the ring. Gama and Zabisco were seated in their respective corners. Stanislaw Zabisco, born April 1, 1879, stood just 5 feet 8 inches tall, but carried 260 pounds of chiseled muscle. He possessed gifted strength and in 1903, Health and Strength magazine listed him among the continent's leading heavyweights. After 1906, he increasingly began to make the switch to catch his can freestyle wrestling. 
he was a world traveler and became extremely popular in the Polish-American communities. He is considered by some the most influential European wrestler of all time. Zabisco was a legitimate hooker in the ring, possessing a vast knowledge of holds that could inflict pain on his opponent. He was subsequently recognized among the world's top catch wrestlers when he battled the fabled Frank Gotch of Iowa to a one-hour draw in November 1909 in Buffalo, New York. The following year, he scored heralded victories over Dr. Roller and the terrible Turk Yusuf Mahamut, thus confirming his reputation among the world's elite grapplers. Zabisco was now regarded among the premier wrestlers in the world. India's feared great Gama, born 1878, an undefeated champion, who had been unsuccessful in his attempts to lure world champion Frank Gotch into a match, was only 5 feet 7 inches tall and touched the scales at about 200 pounds. Fame came to Gama at the age of 19 when he challenged the then wrestling champion of India, Brahim Sultani Vala. At 6 feet 9 inches tall, with an impressive record, Rahim was thought to easily beat the 5-7 Gama, but the bout continued for hours and eventually ended up as a draw. The contest with Rahim was the turning point in Gama's career. After that, he was looked upon as the next contender for the championship of India. By 1910, Gama had defeated all the prominent Indian wrestlers who faced him. At this time, he focused his attention to the World Championship. In London, Gama issued a challenge that he could throw three wrestlers of any weight class in 30 minutes. This announcement, however, was seen as a bluff by the wrestlers. For a long time, no one came forward to accept the challenge. In order to break the ice, Gama presented another challenge to the specific heavyweight wrestlers. He challenged Stanislaw Sabisco and Frank Gotch Either he would beat them, or pay them the prize money and go home. The Lancashire wrestling phrase, catch as catch can, is generally understood to catch a hold anywhere you can. As this implies, the rules are more open than its Greco-Roman counterpart, which does not allow holds below the waist. Catch players can win a match either by submission or pin, and most matches are contested the best two out of three falls. The tapping out signifies a concession, and rolling to one's back could also signify defeat. A hook is a technical submission which could end a match within seconds. Often, but not always, the stranglehold is barred. The catch wrestling style was an ancient sport originally developed from a variety of other styles, most notably the British collar and elbow style, but also Lancashire submission wrestling, along with judo and jiu-jitsu from Japan. Although catch wrestling did not normally include kicks and blows, this form is the ancestor of modern professional wrestling. It was immensely popular in Europe and the United States. Stateside, famous practitioners included U.S. Presidents George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. As the match started, both wrestlers exchanged holds for five minutes seeking weak points and a chance to deliver an attack. Later, Gama made a third attempt and he was successful in bringing his opponent down to the ground. Zabisco landed face first on the floor and Gama landed on top of him. Both men struggled for more than 20 minutes remaining in the same position, but Zabisco kept himself glued to the mat. Finally, Gama released him and got up. This sent a roaring sound across the arena. He asked Zabisco to get up on his feet. Zabisco got on his feet and attacked the Indian. He caught Gama in a Greek submission hold and then managed to throw the Indian opponent off balance and brought him down. Gama landed on the mat, this time Zabisco was on top. The cautious struggle lasted for a few very long minutes until Gama realized that his opponent had weakened up. He immediately launched a series of attacks and finally managed to apply his favorite throw and down went Zabisco again. At this time Zabisco remained glued to the mat like a lizard for another half an hour and didn't let go. He was desperately trying to avoid a pinfall. The sun was setting and the spectators were impatient for action and began yelling and shouting. After 30 long minutes, Zabisco somehow managed to slip away and got up on his feet and started shouting angrily in his Polish language. The angry public booed him. He charged at the Indian with an intense ferocity. Gama managed to avoid his aggression with ease. This made the pole mad and the attack continued until suddenly Gama got caught in a Greek submission stranglehold. 
people saw Gama being crushed under Zabisco's weight and the roar began to grow from the massive crowd. After three minutes, Gama managed to break out of the hold and then suddenly, both wrestlers were struggling onto their feet. At this point, Gama had remained in Zabisco's holds twice for only about five minutes, while Zabisco was again dominated by Gama for a whopping 55 minutes. This was the beginning of a psychological victory for Gama. His Polish opponent had tried every wrestling maneuver in the book with extremely limited success. The public was able to judge for themselves and knew that Gama was far superior on this day. Zabisco's actions of sticking to the ground and remaining on the defensive to avoid defeat irritated the public as they were again getting bored and they started booing again. Gama wrestled Zabisco for more than two hours in this catch-as-catch-can match, but the match remained undecided. Zabisco always remained flat to the floor and refused to get up. At last, the referee warned him that if he continued doing this, he would be expelled from the contest. Zabisco got onto his feet and took a fighting stance, staying a safe distance away from the Indian. He avoided Gama for five minutes and ran inside the ring, but finding no way out, he again avoided a pin by dropping to the ground and sticking to the mat. After another 20 minutes of Gama on top of the prone pole, the public got impatient and began to stir with anger. Zabisco signaled the referee asking for a break. The referee immediately stopped the match. Zabisco got up and asked the referee to postpone the bout for the time being. The referee consulted the judges and they allowed the break because the fight had started at 4 p.m. and had come to a halt at 6.45 p.m. The match was called off for one week. The newspaper reported the actual time of the bout at 154 minutes. The following week, Zabisco never returned. The bout was supposed to resume on the 17th of September 1910, but since Zabisco didn't show, the judges awarded the world championship to Gama. Great Gama was crowned the world champion in London in 1910. He was awarded a silver belt and a championship mace. In 1928, Zabisco received a lucrative offer to wrestle the Great Gama in a rematch of their bout from 18 years earlier. Despite both men now being well past their primes, the match purportedly drew 60,000 fans who watched the great Gama defeat Zabisco in just 40 seconds, but many speculate that Zabisco was well compensated to do the honors. We're going to move into the next match. Yes. Um, this, well, actually, this is like almost another two-tier match. So we just had a bull rope match uh, that led into a manager versus the winner of the match, bull rope match. Now we're headed into an arm wrestling competition. Yes. Uh, between superstar Billy Graham and the Barbarian. Yeah, I don't think this match would pass a PED test. <laughs> right, and uh, Paul Jones is managing the Barbarian. Num- number one Paul Jones. Yep, so now this is his second time out on the show clearly managing a lot of brutes and beasts, as it were, Yes. Uh, in this. The thing that stands out during the arm wrestling, flimsy table. Flimsy table. Yes, not a regulation arm wrestling table. Not at all. Yeah, that was, um, it looked like they took an, a corner table or an end table uh-huh. um, from the green room and just brought it out. Then uh, just supplied a couple folding chairs for the guys to sit on. Exactly. Uh, I did point this out to you. I don't mean any disrespect because... The man is a former world champion, lauded within the industry, la, 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 la. It's at this time that superstar Billy Graham started to have a muscle imbalance between his right arm and his left arm. Yep. So you'll notice he always faced the camera with his right side, and he would only flex his right bicep. Okay. You know, just a little something there, which is curious because as we get in there, we see that the barbarian has a cast on his right hand. Which leads to an arm wrestling match using? With the left hand. Right. Which is weird to me. In the sense that, well, we've got to get this arm wrestling thing on. You know, most guys are right-handed. This was also done at the 93 Clash of Champions, which is at the Mecca in the Blizzard. Yep. They brought in, was it Vinny Vegas against Tony Atlas? But for some reason, at the last minute, they switched that one to being a left-handed arm wrestling deal as well. That one was more regulation. It had the standing table. table okay. Would be up. They weren't just sitting on a folding chair using an end table? Uh, No. No, they were not. So I thought that was very strange. 
Uh, several spots of Superstar Billy Graham holding the table, which is, of course, not kosher before the rules of arm wrestling. Right. Um, we're laughing and joking about this, but I was very impressed by Superstar Billy Graham's ability to work an arm wrestling match. Yes. Um, the way he would sell to the crowd, the way he would you know, have the open mouth shaking his head trying to get... But most of all, when both of the guys finally kicked out their chairs and went to that deep front stance for the, the arm wrestling, it really ratcheted up the tension of what was going on. I agree. I, I actually enjoyed watching it. I mean, so I would recommend watching it in order to learn how to do that particular angle yeah because it's really i mean it's really good it's yeah. very entertaining and yeah. just it, it keeps you in into it the whole time so superstar billy graham wins the arm wrestling match yes which then leads into a match but what happens right after the arm wrestling match i believe that there was a was it a cane shot a, a cane shot and then possibly with the table and then superstar billy graham has what blood color instantly 10, ten seconds into the match yes Another match. Oh, incidentally, uh, no no Western boots in this match. Yes, no Western boots standard, at all. Standard boots on Superstar Billy Graham, Barbarian wearing his version of the Russian, you know. Right. And again, it, instantly after the arm wrestling, Billy Graham is a bloody mess. Bloody mess. Just, I believe he called it blue steel. Yes. In, in his book where he asked, are, are, you, are you thick with the steel? And, uh, you know, and, and we mentioned this when we were watching this together, just my... Thoughts about the Barbarian was, you know, he's a big guy, big, tough guy, uh, but he never had that ferocity or that... uh, No, he was very... uh, He looked like one of those, what, M-U-S-C-L-E figurines you could get, you know, like a caricature of a a pro wrestler. Uh, Legitimately very tough. Allegedly, the only person the Barbarian was afraid of was his wife. As are we all. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So uh, those two battling Barbarian and uh, uh, Billy Graham. First time guys go outside the ring for this one. Yes, yes, but that was also because Superstar couldn't do much in the ring. Yeah, um, you could really tell how limited he was during this match. Yeah, but he was still, I mean, still relatively mobile. Yes. And and in pretty good shape. Yeah, I agree, I um, agree. But was, was already, he was getting wide in the midsection, not necessarily fat, but he didn't have that V shape. It was more of a cylinder shape. Right. But, and, I mean, tremendous, great tan. Yeah, but at, but a fantastic tan. Great tan, great uh, tie-dye, I believe. He talks about this in his book uh, where he came in doing the karate gimmick but went to the Dream and said, hey, I want to redo my old gimmick. Dream's like, oh, baby, that's what we wanted when you came up here and asked him for a front of $5,000 to get his gimmick made up. So, boom, there and you there go. There it is. There right, it is. and then it's all set. Um, so this match ends in a DQ. Yeah, I forgot to write down who fin- yeah. yeah this I was match, just impressed with the arm wrestling. Part. Right. No, like I say, that was great. And the the rest was just your typical uh punch and kick brawl, nothing uh too uh taxing on the guys. They end up outside the ring, um and uh Barbarian is beating up on uh Superstar, uses some foreign objects, the ref DQs the uh, um Barbarian. What I also take away from this at the end is Billy Graham is out in the audience. He had just gotten, kind of got his ass handed to him a little bit and gotten yes. beat up. And he's celebrating a, a DQ victory like he just won the title. I mean, he is yes. loving it. Yes. Uh, we brought this up. It was very similar to when Lex Luger defeated Yokozuna by countout right. at that SummerSlam and then was all celebrating and getting on the turnbuckles. And I was like, what are you happy for? <laughs> right. You haven't, you haven't, sure, you're going home with the winner's share of the purse, but you don't have the gold. Right. And you know, you're just getting the one-time payoff. It's it's the long term, baby. Yeah. So Billy Graham just pumping the fists and excited and high-fiving the fans. You know, hey, I just won this match. Covered by in blood. Co- yeah, covered in blood. So there we go. So that puts us at we are uh, one, two, three, four matches. I guess you could almost say five if you count the short J.J. Dillon, Ron Bass match. We are technically you'd say five matches into the show. Um, and again, here we are with only one match that there was uh, the technical aspects with no blood. Um, everything else has just been a blood fest. Um, from this point, what we're going to do is we're going to deviate because we're going to, this for this episode, this is our main event match we're going to yes, cover now. Yes. Um, we're going to leave the two matches that came before it for the next show to kind of fill out uh, show number two. Because so, somebody's sitting at home with their 
their lineup of the show. Right, just exactly. Marking and, and everything. You know, God somebody, damn it! What's why? What's where's Terry Taylor? Right, exactly. Where's Terry so, Taylor? Somewhere out there, there's a Buddy Landell fan that's going to be very upset oh, that we're leaving his match I to the hope. second uh, second please, show. Please get a hold of us. Uh, please, yeah. yeah. We'll, so we'll put you on. We'll fly in whatever yes and we'll talk to you about production and editing and all that great stuff yes, and yes. why we decided to go the way we are but so for this episode we're going to discuss as the main event dun, dun, dun. the i quit match between magnum ta and tully blanchard for years this was one of my favorite matches and this was for the u.s title as well yes yes this was built up like this is the match when i w- when i was going to college and i was trying to like turn my friends on to wrestling and that was all, uh, that's where I watched the first episodes of Monday Night Raw was yep. during college and everything like that. But I would just, you know, just beg my friends, just just give me 10 minutes of your time. Just, <laughs> I just want you to sit here. I, I will buy the first round tonight. I just want you to sit here for 10 minutes and watch this match. And, and then we can discuss it. And then I won't make you watch any more wrestling. Did it convert anybody? Yes. That's awesome. Yes. They're just like, oh my God, that was so brutal. It's like, yes. That's, That's what wrestling can do. Absolutely. And then El Gigante showed up, and, and everything just went <laughs> and downhill. And went, went, went to shit Giant after Giant Gonzalez. That. Like, oh, good, he's wearing that slim good body outfit. That's, that's great. <laughs> right, right. So here we are. Uh, again, this is the uh, uh, main event for this episode. Magnum TA, Tully Blanchard. Magnum TA standing in the corner, flexing his pecs. Absolutely. Uh, Tully Blanchard accompanied to the ring by... The perfect ten baby doll. Yep, wearing a, uh, a, a very nice dress. Yeah, very smartly dressed. Um, I, I did like baby doll, and some of the early like like sunshine. Yeah, like they were attractive women, but they didn't necessarily give it all away for free. Right. You know, like that was where Missy Hyatt and them came in, which is no. Believe me, I'm not. I'm not bagging on Missy Hyatt at all. Right. I mean, maybe currently, but not back then. No. Oh, back, yeah. Oh. She was fire back then. Oh, jeez. Um, but the thing that I thought funny about Baby Doll was that she was wearing those um, white whatever, gloves. The the gloves, yeah. right? She's a classy broad. And there's a point when she has to collect a blade off the ring apron through uh, through the cage. What? And uh, I would just say that I thought that that might have been like a difficult task for her. Well, no, there were thin gloves. I guess. I mean, but... it's it's wet and it's covered in tape, so you know it should. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just Baby Doll happy. was uh, from a wrestling family. Yes. Uh, her father was a promoter in Texas. Her mother was Lorraine Johnson, who was a uh, lady wrestler that homesteaded out there. Um, I did not know that actually. Yes. Okay. Very good. Uh, so, so she got the job. I forget who they were looking for to bring in as Sunshine or whatever. But then Jimmy Garvin. Uh, politicked and got his cousin Sunshine to get the uh, Sunshine to do the gig in Texas, mm-hmm. and then they brought in Baby Doll later. I believe is Andrea the Lady Giant. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jimmy Garvin's it was his cousin that played Sunshine. Uh, the first Sunshine. Okay, gotcha. Uh, first, uh, yes. Well, no, Sunshine was her cousin. There was another Precious. Before that, I'm sorry, his I'm confusing names. In. I'm confusing yeah, yeah, women are, names, Sunshines and Precious. No, no, uh, cousins, cousins with Sunshine married to the second Precious. Okay, gotcha. Makes I believe sense. still married. Like one of these success stories in wrestling. Like good That's for them. That's awesome. Yeah, good absolutely. For them. Good for you guys. Um, speaking of good for guys, let's talk about Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard. What? Um, <laughs> this match. He's going to come on you like nobody's come on you before. If you haven't seen that Magnum TA promo... That is a legit quote from a promo. Young Soundman Kyle, have you seen that promo? Incredible. Yes, he's shaking where his head, the, yes. Where the Andersons just beat the living hell out of him afterwards. Yes. Oli, come on, mother! And like, can I what? say, uh, for no, the record, no, um, I want to give uh, sound engineer Kyle uh, big ups this week because he actually took the time to watch Starcade 85, The Gathering. And the only thing he texted to me was like, Hey, where, where can I get these boots? Where, no, where can I get this uh, yellow referee's outfit? That was the, that was his big takeaway. Nice. Was the yellow referee outfit? So Sunny Fargo. That was awesome. That was awesome. So here we are uh, in a cage. Magnum TA Tully Blanchard trying to get things back on track here. Uh, the referee is not Sunny Fargo. Uh, the referee correct. is a Hebner. Yes. And um, which one will never know? The typical I quit rules. They've got a microphone. Makes it super effective when they're pounding, when Tully's pounding the microphone off Magnum's head. Yes. And then asking him, give up. And a lot of screaming and saying, hell no. Uh, yeah, great stuff. Good stuff. I mean, just 
this match was so brutal. Like they had a gentleman's agreement to beat the piss out of each other, and it was very good. Um, the thing that sold the brutality for me at the point it was the first time I'd ever seen arm color. Yeah. Uh, we discussed that when Tully gets it off the ring. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my god! Now I know it had happened earlier, but I I just didn't see it. I know Dusty had had it, and Terry Funk was very much into that. I believe Terry Funk like used to gig his ear and stuff. Yeah, like that, that was that's a big what one Piper did. Uh, but yeah, the arm color was like, oh my god, they're really beating the hell out of I each agree. other. I agree. I think that ratcheted up the believability and the intensity of it. That when you saw the blood on the arm, it just felt that much more just insane and they were just brutal um two men beating the crap out of each other until baby doll grabs a wooden chair and breaks it against the cage now uh before we even get to that though i think sorry oh no no problem um i just think something to think about uh, in the storytelling in this match that also makes it great is you're still seeing besides your besides the punching and the kicking you're seeing you know a suplex a body slam extremely deliberate extremely slow huge impacts, um, things that just, I mean, it's almost like they took their time with every single move that they did in this match. You're just, you're forcing me to say back in my day. Go for it. That's all I've No, that was part of the build of this match was allowing these things to register and allowing people to see the brutality and how they were beating each other up. It wasn't zip, 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 let's do a lot of moves and make them ooh and ah. Uh, what's the expression? The people were cheering. They were invested in the match. They weren't just ooing and eyeing at the acrobatic display. They believed two men were beating each other up. Right. And that's just, it's, it's again, it could still work today. It just needs time to re-educate the people and bring them back around. I think you could drop that match into today's wrestling, maybe with different people, because... I am mystified by this. The newer generation's lack of respect for Magnum TA. Yeah. Some people just don't, they don't get it. And I, I, I get that they don't get it, but I was indoctrinated through that. So I, you know, think he was a good sure. competitor. Um, had some great matches in Florida, great matches. There's one good match with him and Bachwinkle from Southwest. Um, I mean, just, uh, he was a good worker. Don't know if he would have got the title because everybody was promised the title. But right. And I asked you this the other day, and I asked you to save your answer for the show. What was, if you were to pick the highlight, and oh, I, yeah, I remember what you said about the highlight of his career. <laughs> it was the Porsche crash. But Sorry, I mean, you <laughs> no, laugh, I, oh, but I, it's often said that a celebrity's best business move is dying. Right, because, right. Because, um, But in all seriousness, which one is the bigger career highlight? Is it the I Quit match, or is it the best of seven with Nikita? I think it was the I Quit match, but I'm just biased by that. The best of seven with Nikita, uh, Nikita had to hold his end of that as well. Right. And that was also the booking, but I think that was more a a booking idea that was, it was the script writing that got the people involved in that because they got invested in each match, whereas this was a single match that they had to get their point over. Sure. I mean, that's just how I see it, you know, totally open for discussion right no absolutely i agree i kind of think if if there's i mean don't get me wrong i enjoyed the best of seven series but if there's something that i would watch over and over again i would definitely go to the i quit match well yeah look at it this way if you were going to show somebody hey either watch this i quit match or watch these seven matches right they would be impressed with the i quit match because the seven matches you had that investment of Every week you turn in, how many times did they wrestle this week? You know, right. how, how did it go back and forth? And they would keep score on it. So that was part of how, that's why it became memorable to you, because you were invested week to week, and you had to wait to find out. You weren't checking your phone to do that. Right. Unless you were calling the 900 the number. Line. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you had brought it up as we uh, kind of approached the finish of the match. Um, Baby Doll throws a wooden chair into the ring, and... Um, Tully, I b- believe, proceeds to smash it into pieces. Yes. Uh, why don't you take it from there? Well, it has been remarked, you brought it up, and other people have as well, that the chair seems to break suspiciously well in order to give them that spike to drive into each other's eyes. But, but I will say, I feel that if you watch it, it looks like Tully, I believe, tries to break the spike off of it and then decides just to go at it with the whole... Right. Right. The whole leg with the spike attached to it. Right. And I think that might have just been, ah, oh, let me get this. Oh, okay, this isn't going to work. Right. But it, it worked out magnificently. 
where uh, T.A. was on his back on the mat. Tully drops down, and T.A. crosses his arms and holds the spike off. Right. And they, they do that slow inch and slow inch. And if you look very carefully, you can see at the last minute that Magnum T.A. lifts his head in order to take the spike in his head. In doing that, he gives himself a cushion in case something goes wrong. If Tully slips or whatever, he's got a little bit of distance to get out of there. Right. You know, it's very That's just how you protect yourself in the ring. So you knew what was going on. But then a few kicks, a few kicks, suddenly Tully drops the piece. He's down on his knees. Magnum sees the piece, grabs it, comes up behind him, and drops it right into his forehead. Yep. And just starts digging and digging and digging. And the referee's asking him, do you quit? Do you quit? And Tully just screaming, yes, 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 yes. And the referee rings the bell and the people go crazy. It's like, God damn it. But he never said, I quit. Right. Never said, I quit. Which But it was a, a great finish for the match. But what was pointed out to me one time, and I agree, the most important part of the match. And, th- and you were pointed this out to me last week, and I was like, God damn it, that is great. Magnum grabs Tully, prepares the spike, all of a sudden looks at Tully, looks at the spike, throws the spike down. Yes. Realizes he's been pushed to the limit, but that's just not who he is. Right. The match is won. There's no reason. Magnum TA is still the good guy. And it's that little bit right at the end. Yep. That not That is the cherry on top of an almost perfect Sunday right there. Uh, there's also a little Easter egg when... T.A. is given the belt, and he goes to walk out of the ring, and he throws the belt over his shoulder, uh, just catches Hebner in the head with the belt. <laughs> just a little, oh, son of a, you know. But yeah. Just a little thing, aha. Again, I've watched this match so many times. Yep. Just and, incredible. And uh, he wasn't in the match. But um, that was definitely a great, great match. And that's where we are going to call it quits for this week. Um, that is our main event, Magnum T.A. versus uh, Tully Blanchard. I quit match. Next week, we will continue on with Starcade 85, The Gathering. Um, we have a lot more to get to. Again, we just covered the first five matches of the show. Um, we have another five to get to. And um, I think you're going to see some more blood. Yeah, we're going to see some more blood. We're going to see some more Western boots. Uh, anybody, if you have any recollections of these matches or... If we if you feel we got something wrong from our viewing of the tape, please get a hold of us. Post but but, on but trust us, we just watched this the other day. But yeah, but we didn't <laughs> remember who who won that one match. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, but it was great. Uh, we want to thank sound engineer Kyle for uh, sticking with us, doing a great job on this show again, and actually watching the gathering. Uh, and not the Juggalo one, the uh, Starcade one. Uh, so that's fantastic. Want to thank Eric Arsenal for uh, making our song, creating the song for the theme song for the show. And thank you for listening. Um, this has been Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, any questions, uh, Derek would love to answer them. And we will see you next week with part two of Starcade 85, The Gathering.